Morning. So, um, one year ago, we had service here, uh, and when we started, no joke, there were three people in the room. And um, a guy by the name of Douglas Welcome, who was our creative director at the time, um, he really was trying to push himself to really like engage the audience, but that was me and two other people. Um, and so like he started out, and he's like, okay, we're going to sing to this morning. And he had his finger in the air, and I was like, wow, you were really trying hard. And then, I, I, because he was trying so hard, I felt like I needed to really be into it as well. And so they're doing this really upbeat song, and they're clapping. And, and he pulls me aside after service. This is all true. Like, we really legitimately had three people in the room. And because um, people show up late, you still show up late. Uh, and um, no judgment, I'm just saying. He pulls me aside, and he's like, um, can you not clap? He's like, I lose, I lose my, I lo you're so off that if I watch you clap, I lose my rhythm. Um, and he's like, so if you just not clap, that'd be great. So anyway, it, <laughs> The point of the story is it's good to have more people here so that when I can clap and the band doesn't get off. So anyway, okay, happy birthday. So we're in the middle of a series called The Year of Biblical Literacy, um, and what we've been doing is we started off by, by essentially spent the first couple weeks on a hermeneutic. How do we go about reading scripture? Uh, and then we spent six weeks looking at the overarching story of God. And then the past three weeks, or including this week, we're looking at the book of Judges. And what, what I did, what we talked about last week was the story of Gideon. And I didn't even get to my favorite part because I wanted to encourage you to go and read the text for yourself, to go and read the story for yourself. And one of the things that I said is that I hope that you'll discover a playfulness with the biblical text. Right? These stories, particularly the Old Testament, were were are, were. Uh, in, are inherited from an oral culture. They were told around a campfire. And then at some point, editors took these stories that had been passed down generation to generation and, and began adding them into the books of the Bible that we know now. And they were put together. First of all, the stories that we have were preserved for a purpose. There's like a million different stories the authors of the Bible could include. But the ones that they included were included for a purpose. And then the other thing to remember is that they were structured in the way that they're structured for a reason or for a purpose. And, and, and so sometimes when we read the Bible as simply static words on a page to extract some sort of truth for living, we miss the beauty of what the authors are trying to communicate through these stories. There's a reason these stories are written down and there's a reason that they're put in the way that they're put. But what I love about these stories is that they not only reveal something about the people in the story, but they reveal something about us. Because more often than not, we can see ourselves in these stories. Because even though the story of Judges takes place 3,000 plus years ago, the, the fears and the doubts of Gideon that we explored last week is the same fear and doubt that we have today. And the same God that shows up in the story of Gideon is the same God who shows up in our story today. And one of the reasons I want us to discover a playfulness with the text, to hear it in new and fresh ways, is because we believe that the Bible is not just static words written years ago, but it is living and active, right? The scriptures say it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. But if it's living and active, we have to continue to hear it afresh and new, allow God to speak through these ancient words to us fresh today. 
the rabbis, ancient rabbis had this saying. They said that the, the scripture is like a gem. The scripture is like a gem, and it, it radiates light depending on how you turn the gem. Right? And so as the, light, as the light bounces off, you see new things. And so in order to, to, to catch the light of a gem, you have to turn it um, to get the full, in, the full beauty. Right? And so in the same way with Scripture, we try to turn it just a bit so we can hear it afresh and anew. And so in your own life, I'd encourage you to, there are stories that when you hear them on the surface, you're like, I know that story by heart. The story of Samson and Delilah, a story that's so messed up I decided I couldn't even make a sermon out of it. Um, like, go read that story in the book of Judges. What does it say to you today? Hear it with fresh eyes. Hear it with new, uh, with new ears. Um, so yeah, I just really encourage you to do that because we believe that God continues to speak a word of hope and that God continues to speak a word at times of warning through these ancient stories. Okay, now, I've been trying to ask us during the series on Judges, I've been asking us a question every week. Um, and, and, and last week I asked the question, who do you want to become? And, and said another way is basically, what do you want people to say about you when you leave the room? Because the truth is, people talk about you when you leave the room. It's not bad talk particularly, just people say things. That Kevin, he's such a sweetheart, which is what most of you say when I leave the room. But the question is, like, who do you want to be? And, and, and so we, as we listen to these stories, we're also, I think these questions that we're wrestling with are the same questions that kind of are underneath the text that we're reading. And, and so um, a, a big part of Israel's problem is that the question we're going to hear today is, is that the answer they provide to the question that we're going to hear today. And, and so I, I'm going to ask you this question, and, and at first it's going to seem, I don't know, a bit, a bit poppy, but... But actually, the, the question we're going to hear today is the question, I believe, that underlies the entire book of Judges. And the answer to this question, the way that Israel answered this question, determined their history. Now, what we did is we actually read this story backwards. We started with the end of Judges. And if you missed that sermon, you should go back and listen to it on the podcast. Because what we did is that we ended with the end. We, we saw how depraved and messed up the story becomes and today we're actually going to go all the way back to the beginning of judges in fact we're going to just slip from judges into the book previous to judges to joshua to the final couple chapters of joshua which lead us to the beginning of judges and there's a question that kind of underlines this and the way that israel ends up answering this question determines their history and the way that you answer this question a question that you never think to ask yourself, but the way that you answer this question can determine your history. The question is this. Do you want to be like everybody else? Now, I'm guessing, for most of you, if I were to take you to coffee and ask you that question, do you want to be like everyone else, you'd be like, no way. I'm a unique snowflake, right? I am, I am special. Right? Nobody says, I want to have a relationship like everyone else. Nobody says, I want to manage my money like everyone else, or I want to be an employee like everyone else, or I want to have a job like everyone else. No, you are unique. You are special. Now, at the same time, the truth is, for most of us, we're kind of like everybody else. Right? And so for a few minutes this morning, I want to talk about everybody else. Now, I'm not talking about you, I'm not talking about people at the table church. I'm just talking about everyone else. So just to get that out of the way. 
but I need to tell you a few things about everyone else. Everyone else wants their life to look like a commercial. Everyone else wants their life to look like a perfectly curated Instagram feed or Kinship or Kinfolk magazine or whatever that beautiful magazine is where everything is just perfect. They want to look good and be surrounded by people who look good. Everyone else doesn't want to have a real job. They want it to always be the afternoon headed into an exciting evening. They don't want to get old. They want to have plenty of money and always be traveling to an exotic location. They want to have a job that makes them feel special and unique. Everyone else wants their life to look and feel a bit like an Airbnb commercial. Beautiful people with no worries, doing exciting things. But the truth is, it doesn't. Right? Because everyone else is worried, and everyone else is in debt, and everyone else hates their job, and everyone else is working way too many hours, and everyone else is self-medicating. And, and here's the thing you need to hear. In our attempt to be like everyone else, we chase a life that was never real in the first place. And some of you, listen, some of you are making yourself miserable chasing a life that never existed. Marketers play, marketers play on our deepest desires and convince us that if we had this, if we were like everyone else, then we could be happy. Of course, the truth is, it's not just everyone else or it's not just marketers who caused this to happen. We do this to ourselves. Many of us are taking our cues on the life we live from what we think everyone else is doing. And at the risk of, of stating the obvious, if you take your cues from everyone else, you will become like everyone else. And the problem is, with taking your cues you realize from other people, is, is you are taking your cues, listen, you're taking it from their highlight reel. You're taking it from the life that they have curated, the life that they want you to see. You see them at their best, not in the valley. Right? Unless you are close to someone. What we often see on the outside is the smiling, happy exterior. We don't see the inside. We don't see the pain. We don't see the heartache. We just see the insta-feed. We just see the happy, smiling face that has the job that we envy. And so the question is, do you want to be like everyone else? Or, let me ask it this way. Do you want to continue living like everyone else? And I think, if, and I think if, if your answer is no, I think there's a word that we can discover in the story that we've been exploring. Now, just quick recap. The book of Judges happened, um, uh, let me just walk you through the whole, the quickly. So uh, we get Abraham, Abraham has these sons, and then they end up in Egypt, they're in slavery. Finally, they are led out of slavery, but because of their own brokenness, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And there's this guy named Moses, you may have seen the Ten Commandments. There's a guy named Moses who, who, uh, who leads them through the, the wilderness. But because of Moses' own brokenness, he isn't able to lead them to the edge of the promised land. And so God raises up another leader, actually an assistant, someone who kind of trains under Moses, one of Moses' apprentices, a guy by the name of Joshua. 
And Joshua is the leader of Israel um, after Moses, and, and, but, but he also has brokenness in his own life. And because of his own brokenness, he too is not able to lead Israel into the promised land. But he is able to lead them up to the edge. Right? So the, the story, undergirding the story of Israel is, this, is a promise of land. That someday you are going to inherit land, and through this land you are going to be a great nation. And through you, and through the land, and through your, your, your life together, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's kind of the promise. And so connected with the promise is the promise that someday you will have land. And so Joshua leads them up to the edge of the promise. They are about ready to cross over. But as they're about ready to cross over into the, the promised land, and, and we're about ready to cross over into the book of Judges, which is a 330-year period. The book of Judges essentially covers a 330-year period from uh, the time that they enter the promised land. And, and, and during this period, they are essentially living under the rule of God. There is no king. The idea is that God is their king. God is providing the structures and confines of what it means to live as covenant people. Right? So God is their king. There is no king. And, and this 330 years is the period between entering the land and when they finally have um, both the kingship of Saul and the, the Davidic kingship. And the thing that's important about the, the kingship of David or the Davidic kingship is that's the good old days. From that point on, everyone always looks back to the, the kingship of David as like those were the times when life was great. Okay, so that kind of, we, that's kind of the framework. So this, what we're going to explore today is a story or is a, is a speech that Joshua gives Israel right before they enter the promised land. In fact, this, if he were to write a book, this would be like called My Speech Before I Die or something encouraging like this. Like this is some of the last words that Joshua says before he, before he passes. And so I, I want us to explore these words because what ends up happening is they don't heed his language and, and Israel ends up in this, this cycle which is really easy to judge but is similar to the cycle in your life where, where they disobe disobey God, disaster strikes, they cry out to God, they say, oh, we are so sorry, we kind of screwed up this time but if you save us this time, we'll never do it again and then, and then they do it again and then it kind of goes around and around and around. I know it sounds familiar. And the thing is, the thing is, undergirding this, the thing that leads them astray is, this, is, that, is that they want to be like everyone else. And what they discover is that, that the thing that they copied ends up capturing them. And for some of you, for some of you, there's something that you wished that you had never started or that you'd never seen, and now you can't stop. Because something captured your imagination. Something captured your imagination. And now that thing that captured your imagination is capturing your time. It's capturing your money. And it seems hard to turn around. It seems hard to say no. Right? Israel has the same problem. When, when they enter the land, when they end up entering the land, it's, the surrounding nations seem to have some really cool gods seem to have some really cool things going on, and they think, okay, we can just copy that, bring that into our life, and then we can be just like them. 
we can be like all the other nations. And, and just in case you think I'm making this up, if we keep reading past Judges and enter into 1 Samuel 8, there's this dialogue where they have with the prophet Samuel where they finally are they're begging for Samuel to, to make them like all the other nations. And they finally, they say this exact phrase, we want to be like all the other nations. And all this could have been avoided if they'd simply listened to the advice that Joshua gives them. So here it is. Joshua says, chapter 23, don't ally yourselves with the, survivor of the, na- the survivors of the nation that remain among you. He's like, look, you're moving into a new land and they're going to have their own practices and they're going to have their own gods. Be hospitable. Israel kind of had this, like Israel had this calling that was baked into their life together. That they were to be hospitable to the strangers around them. He, he's like, be hospitable but don't allow yourself to be captured by the things that capture their imagination. You're going to have to work around them, and you're going to have to live next to them. He says, but, but don't ally yourselves with these survivors. He said, because if you do, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back and thorns in your eye. He's essentially saying, if you long for the things that they have, it will capture you. It will master you. And this is true. Right? There are things, there are things that you wish you had never seen. You, you wish you'd never seen your friend's pay stub, or you wished you'd never seen the new eye gadget, or whatever it might be, because the second you see your friend's pay stub, all of a sudden your salary, which was fine before, just isn't that great anymore. Or as soon as you see the new eye gadget, that incredible new iPhone 7 is sluggish and crappy. Now, this is, this is my own personal problem, right? For some of you, it's a person. It's a person you wish you could unsee or unmeet. And then once you see it, you have to have it. You just have to have it. And it can almost become an, an obsession. And without it, you can't be happy. And the next thing you know, you're living and getting into debt and doing everything like everyone else. And I know this about you, even though we haven't talked, because it's a challenge that I have. And I also know this about you, most of you, if I were to sit you down and say, hey, do you want to be like everyone else? The answer is no. But anyway, back to the story. So Joshua says, he says, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back and thorns in your eyes. And then he says this, until you perish from this good land, which the Lord has given you. There's that, the phrase good appears all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. One of the struggles that we have and one of the struggles that Israel has is that they felt that God was trying to keep something good from them. We feel as if God is trying to keep something good from us. And to be fair, some of you grew up in traditions where God was painted as someone who's tried to keep something good from you. If it was fun, it was wrong. Right? That was just kind of, the, that was like the bar. Um, I mean, if, if something was fun and brought joy, then there was probably something wrong with it. But that's just bad theology. It's not God's problem. God created us for beauty and for joy and for life-giving relationships. 
But the problem is, and this goes back to what we talked about last week, the problem is, and this is, a, this is another question that you, some of you need to wrestle with, is this question of, is God for you? Or is God keeping something good from you? Because some of us live our lives in such a way as if, as if we could have this amazing life, but God is keeping us from having this life. God was not trying to keep Israel. God was not trying to keep the nation from something good. He was trying to give them something good. He was trying to create a beautiful world where they lived differently, where it was a world of peace and justice and love and where the, where the foreigner in their midst was cared for like one of their own. A world where, where, people, where people cared for one another. He was trying to make them special, not like everyone else. But this idea of do I believe that God is for me is something that we all wrestle with. And some of you have grown up in a world that lived as if, that if you believe that, that, that if I suffer, listen, this is true. Some of you believe that if you suffer enough in this life, then someday God's going to give you a reward, right? You are, just, you are just slogging through, giving up on all the fun things that you can have because God is keeping all these wonderful things from you. But if I try hard enough, and if I am miserable enough, then someday there will be a great reward in heaven. There will be a crown with many rubies or something like that. And the thing you need to know is that God wants what's best for you. God is for you. God wants good things for your life. But Israel struggled with believing this every bit as much as we do. I think it's interesting that the first temptation recorded in Genesis... The first temptation recorded in the book of Genesis is, and actually, this is not, the, the Jewish tradition kind of sees this as the first temptation. Islamic tradition sees this as the first temptation. And Christians see this as the first temptation. The very first temptation was to believe that God was against humans, not for it. Remember the, remember the, 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 the deceiver, the serpent, slipped, slides up to Adam and Eve, and he said, hey, who told you you could not eat from this fruit? He said this? He said that something bad would happen to you? There's like a scoff. Really? Come on, you're not believing that, right? Actually, if you eat this fruit, something good will happen to you. God is keeping something good from you. And the lie that undergirds this moment is, is that God can't be trusted. That God is trying to keep something good from you. That there's something good that he doesn't want you to have. And wherever you are in your religious journey, your religious pursuit, wherever you are with this Jesus thing, you need to wrestle with the question whether God is for you and whether God is keeping something good from you. And the nation of Israel erred on the side of saying, it looks like, it looks like God is trying to keep something good from us because look how much fun the other nations are having. We want to be just like them. Now the thing is, if we'd set Israel down a giant auditorium and we'd interviewed them all, maybe we did like a push poll or Twitter poll or something, do you, you know, do you want to be just like all the other nations? Early on, they'd been like, no, we're special. As time goes on, they become captured by the things that have captured their imagination. God had such amazing things in store for them, but instead at the end of the story, the end of Judges, this this, this nation with such incredible possibility 
finds themselves in utter chaos and destruction. And Joshua pleads, don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that God is keeping something good from you. He continues on. Now then, throw away the foreign gods that are among you. Throw away the foreign gods that are among you. If there's anything you own, he's saying if there's anything you own, if there's anything in your life, if there's anything that has the potential to draw you away from God as king, get rid of it. Now, I'm going to give you just a, a quick tip for when you're reading through, particularly through the Old Testament. You'll often find talk about idols. And, and my, my natural inclination is I kind of skim over idol talk because I'm like, well, I do not have any idols on my shelves at home, so I think I'm good. But idols, idols are the things in your life that you give ultimate importance to. And so when you read stories that talk about idols, the story is essentially saying, get rid of the things in your life that you give ultimate importance to. This is why the Ten Commandments, when God is giving the structures of what Israel's life is to look like, he's like, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not have any other thing in your life that you ascribe ultimate importance to, whether it is a relationship, or whether it's a job, or whether it's the your checkbook or whatever it might be thou shalt not have anything else before me get the, joshua is saying now then throw away all the things that are among you that you are giving ultimate importance to besides god get rid of the idol and this is such a powerful statement the, the statement he ends with the statement he ends with gets picked up again in the teachings of jesus but he says this and yield your hearts and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The kingdom of God works by capturing your imagination. It's by capturing your picture of the ultimate reality. By capturing the things that you desire, or put another way, you become what you love. You become what you love. And, and the Jesus movement always works from the inside out. God wants to do something inside of you that impacts the way you live. Following Jesus begins with saying, God, help me to see as you see. Help me to see people the way that you see them, to treat them the way that you would treat them. Help me to spend and manage my money the way that you would spend and manage my money. Help me to see my vocation and my purpose and the plans that you have for my life the way that you would see them. For some of you, it might just begin with a simple prayer every morning. God, today, help me to see as you see and to do what you say. We need to find spiritual practices, and this is why prayer and reading of Scripture and other spiritual practices, fasting, I mean, there's like this whole litany of spiritual practices. Just a side note, spiritual practices are not one size fits all. That's one of the reasons we're doing this Lenten uh, these Lenten practices, right? the idea of thinking of walking as a spiritual practice. Or some of you, for so long, you've been told to go get in a prayer closet, and your personality, you go in a prayer closet, and you literally go insane, right? Like, you start hearing voices because you can't handle being by yourself, being in a small room. Some of you need to meditate to figure out how to calm down. But others of you, right, it's just, <laughs> others of you, that was to me, uh, that's my struggle. Uh, my wife wants to, she's like, Kevin, you're a very uptight person. We should try meditating. And um, 
It was really, it did not go well. Actually, I fell asleep. I felt like, you know, anyway, I don't know why I'm telling this story. I'm getting off track. Um, But spiritual practices are not one size fits all. I still remember the time that I, uh, I heard someone talk about running while he prayed. Right? He talked about how as he would run, he would have this prayer, Lord God, Lord God. He'd just repeat that over and over. Or he'd maybe just repeat, Jesus, you are love. Jesus, you are love. Or Jesus, you are love. Or Jesus, help me to see others as you would see them. And every time his feet would hit the ground, he would say this prayer over and over again. Right? So you, you know, using running or your commute to work, as a spiritual practice, as a time to experience God. And the reason that you need spiritual practices in your life is because if you don't have some way of helping you, help, helping reshape the things that you desire and the things that you long for and the things that, you ca- that capture your imagination, you will become just like everyone else because the broader culture has liturgies of its own, has spiritual practices of its own. And whether you realize it or not, you are being shaped and molded by spiritual practices. The question is, do you choose what practices are shaping you? See, we have to find practices that shape our hearts and minds to desire God's kingdom, God's way of living, a kingdom of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. Our ultimate loves, our ultimate desires are shaped by practices, not merely through ideas that are communicated. This is why some of the Christians that you meet who, are more in, who, who know more about the Bible than anyone else are also some of the most miserable people you've ever been around. Right? The problem with Israel was not a knowledge problem. They had way more knowledge than they needed. It was how they shaped and formed and practiced who they were becoming. There's a great book um, entitled, I'd really encourage everyone to read it, it's, it uh, by a, a guy named Jamie Smith, and it's called You Are What You Love. A phenomenal read that talks about how the, the things that you practice in your daily life shape who you become. Israel's problem was not a knowledge problem. Trying harder is not going to be enough because there are all these counter liturgies, all these counter narratives that compel us to long for and to become like everyone else. And being a follower of Jesus is about being a peculiar person. Christians are to be a peculiar people. Now that doesn't particularly mean odd. We actually have that covered fairly well. (laughs) It means that we act in a ways that are countercultural. It means that we are ambitious for others, not simply for ourselves. It means we choose to love our enemies and do good for those who curse us. It means we're people who are known for our radical hospitality. It means that we are known for our extravagant generosity. It means that we turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. It means that in a world that is set on tearing itself apart, we bring people together. But living into God's future kingdom, living the way of Jesus takes practice and it takes formation. It's about about more than just knowing stuff. Joshua puts it this way. Yield your hearts to God. He's saying, look, if he was saying this today, he'd say something like this. Allow your imagination to be captured by God's kingdom. the, The picture that you have of the world the life that you want to live, allow it to be captured by God, by God's kingdom. We began this mini-series with the end, with chaos. 
And the reason that things spiral out of control is because Israel had decided that they wanted to be like everyone else. And so the question I leave you with this morning is have you yielded your heart to God? Who will be your king? Will you yield, will you live your life like everyone else? Or will you yield your life to the kingdom of God? A kingdom that begins on the inside. I want to leave you with this prayer for this week. And this might be helpful. Maybe you need to find another prayer, another scripture. But this is the one I would suggest um, for you this week. Maybe even write it down, put it on your mirror. Uh, And this week, every morning, maybe put it beside your bed. And before you even get up, just pick it up and read these words. Psalms 119, 35 through 37. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statues and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. My challenge is that you would yield your heart to God and God's kingdom. Let's pray.